Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. It is like totally nice to be back with you on the like Blindside podcast. I haven't completely lost my marbles, but actually I might be getting a few pennies because I've set up a jar here at Mosen Towers where whenever any of my kids do this like thing, what is it with kids and the like thing these days? They say like and they just intersperse it just anywhere like randomly in a like sentence. It's totally frustrating. So I've got a, a jar, and whenever any of them says like, they're supposed to put 10 cents in the jar. Not that many of them do, but hopefully it might make them think about their grammar or use of words just a little bit. I'll try and use some decent words on this podcast. It's Jonathan Mosen back with you. Thank you for all of the feedback that we've had on the Blindside podcast. Actually, I almost wish that this was a video podcast, although it would be largely wasted on this audience. You know what I mean? Largely wasted. But uh, you'd be able to see how dapper I look. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of issues on these podcasts, and at some point we will get onto some health and wellness topics, which I think is an interesting thing for the blind community to discuss, because getting out and about and being active and going to a gym can be quite a challenge for some people because there's all this gear, there's all this noise, and there are people making noise and using the gear and you sort of don't want to run into them and so there are some challenges that I think are unique to the blind community relating to staying well and staying healthy and staying fit. Anyway, my youngest daughter told me a few weeks ago, Dad, you look like a gangster because nothing fits you anymore and this is nothing fitting me anymore in a good way. She says I look like a gangster because my pants and my clothes were all baggy because I'm now 50 pounds down. And if you're in a metric country, like New Zealand is a metric country, you may be saying, well, why Why are you doing the pounds thing? Because pounds are more incremental. So you see the weight come off more gradually with the pounds. It's a psychological thing. And anyway, 50 pounds down is something to celebrate. So the kids took me out the other day to a department store here in Wellington, the capital of New Zealand, And my credit card is now considerably lighter, but I do now have a whole new wardrobe with clothes that look quite cool, I'm told, and fit. Who do you get to choose clothes for you? I think as somebody who's been totally blind since birth, you really have to put trust in people, don't you, to be told what's looking good on you. I'm told that my youngest teenage son is a reasonably snappy, intuitive dresser, so he was giving me a lot of advice. So here I am, new clothes and a few 10-cent coins in the jar, ready to present another edition of the Blindside podcast to you. And who's on the show this week? Shortly, we'll be talking with New Zealand's Minister of Disability Issues. She is Nikki Wagner. New Zealand has been going through a conversation on a new disability strategy. That process is nearly over But what do we do when the talking is over? How will the New Zealand government operationalise this disability strategy? The Minister joins me from Parliament to discuss those issues and a few others pertinent to the blind community. And then we do something that I think is illustrative of what I'm trying to achieve with the Blindside podcast. We take an issue, which is a mainstream one, but also has specific repercussions, ramifications for the blind community. And this is the whole question of the rights of content creators versus the rights of content consumers. The whole question of digital rights management, what you can do with the content when you have it, is it appropriate for you to be able to format shift, to convert it to something else? And there's a new standard that the World Wide Web Consortium of all organizations is involved with. It's quite contentious in accessibility circles. And we're joined by none other than Corey Doctorow. Now, you may know him in a number of capacities because he's a best-selling author. He's also involved with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's quite a staunch activist, I guess you would say, on one extreme of the digital rights management spectrum. He's not in favor of digital rights management. And uh, he also has a role in the Boing Boing blog, which you may have read. It's a blog that's been around a long time. So we're thrilled to be able to talk to Corey Doctorow about the issues specific to blind people, but also the wider concerns relating to digital rights management and the degree to which content creators should be allowed to protect their intellectual property against piracy and inappropriate use. 
That's all coming up here on The Blind Side. Before we move on, let me first tell you that Mosin Consulting is now taking pre-orders for iOS 10 Without the Eye. This is the fourth book in the iOS Without the Eye series, and we release this on the day that Apple releases the new version of iOS. Now, there's a lot of free content out there, but what we do is we go very carefully through the new version of iOS. We start this process in June of each year, right after the Worldwide Developers Conference, literally the hour after it, and we write up all the new features in iOS 10 from a blindness perspective. There are lots of step-by-step instructions. It's all in text, it's all searchable, and it's all in one convenient, easy place. If you would like to pre-order a copy of iOS 10 without the eye, you can do so now. Head on over to the Mosin Consulting Store, or there's a short URL you can go to, and that's www.mosin.org slash iOS 10. Our place, our issues. The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosin. Disabled people throughout New Zealand have been invited to join the conversation on a new disability strategy for New Zealand. After a first round of consultation, a strategy was drafted and that's formed the basis of a second round of consultation which is just concluding. New Zealand's Minister for Disability Issues is Nikki Wagner and she's on the line now. Nikki, it's great to have you on the programme. Thank you for coming on. Nice to talk to you, Jonathan. How often does this wide consultation on a fresh disability strategy take place? Because we have podcast listeners in New Zealand, but also many around the world as well who will not be familiar with the way that this works in New Zealand. Well, the first disability strategy was put together in 2001. So that's 15 years ago. Um, The world has changed dramatically since then. Since then, we've had uh, the convention, the United Nations Convention for the Rights of People with Disabilities. Uh, We've had enormous amount of changes in terms of disabled people's organisation. We've been looking at co-design. We've developed an action plan. And so it was well and truly time for us to do another iteration of that strategy. Uh, The 2001 strategy was considered world-leading, and we want this next iteration to be as equally world-leading. Do you think there'll ever come a time when political parties will make more of a conscious effort to recruit disabled people into their lists in particular? I, I wonder how easy it is for a person with a disability to win an electorate seat. But, you know, it wouldn't be that acceptable these days for a Minister of Māori Affairs, for example, to to not be Māori. And yet disabled people are still quite underrepresented in in Parliament and indeed in the media and senior decision-making roles in New Zealand. Well, it depends how you think about disability. At the last 2013 census, about 24% of New Zealanders said they had some sort of disability. So if you take that as an example, I suspect 20% of parliamentarians have some sort of disability, although often those disabilities tend to be more in people over 65. And obviously, although we do have some MPs that are over 65, we tend to be a little bit younger. Um, So in terms of obvious disabilities, not so much, although we do have Mojo Mather, who's our Green Party List MP, and that has been very good, I think, for Parliament because it gives us an opportunity to see somebody who is obviously disabled and can manage the everyday life of being... um, an MP, which is a demanding life in itself. Uh, Interestingly enough, I often think in terms of physical disability, particularly if you're in a wheelchair or something like that, that uh, all of us probably are going to be disabled in some time. You know, you think about as a baby, you can't do some of these things, and as an older person, you can't. And every now and then we have our MPs who end up doing something to themselves and end up in a wheelchair or with crutches in the house as well. And so we've had to be able to deal with that. And over the last um, probably 18 months or so, uh, we've been working with the Speaker of the House to increase the accessibility of Parliament House itself. And we've done a lot of work in terms of managing it, particularly for blind people, so that they can feel their way through, um, deaf people in terms of making our lifts, speaking lifts. Um, And we've done a lot of work just to try and make the place easier and more accessible to all New Zealanders. So I don't think there's any barriers against having 
having more disabled people in Parliament. Um, we just have to talk them into standing, perhaps. Mm, or possibly electoral barriers in the sense that there will be some people, just like in employment, and we know what a high rate of unemployment there is in the disability community, uh, that maybe electors might be a bit nervous. It has been overcome in other countries, of course. You have David Blunkett, who was totally blind, and a guide dog handler who became Home Secretary in the US, and there have been governors in the United States. So it's doable, but we haven't really got to that point in New Zealand just yet. Mm. Well, as I say, Mojo's doing a pretty good job, and I think um, if you asked electors, does Mojo pull her weight in Parliament? I think it's a perfect example of leading by example. Absolutely. Actually, yeah, interestingly enough, I do think there's a change in how people see disability, and this is why we're rewriting the strategy. Uh, most young people are now mainstreamed and they're in the education system, and so you often see young people working together and absolutely not seeing the disability because they're just their mates that sit next door to them in school. And I think as that goes through the process, it's going to be helpful for all of us. But one of my focuses is exactly on what you're talking about, um, giving more choice and more opportunities uh, for disabled people to get into work. And what we've found over the time that I've been working on Project 300, I'm just rolling out a, a, a project called employability, that we need to make our employers more disability confident. We can spend all our time working with our disabled people, but research tells us that if we get the right match in a job, disabled people not only pull their weight, but they're star employees. And people who employ disabled people by the dozens will tell you how much value that they can add to the organisations in terms of the work they do, but also how they interact with other people in their organisations and how they react to the public as they interact with their organisations. So the point is, it's not the disabled people who can't do the jobs, it's us actually making sure that employers who have the ability to open that door are confident enough about working with disabled people. It seems to be a very positive process and people are engaged. Strategic exercises can, though, be quite lofty and aspirational. In the end, the government has got to turn those aspirations into concrete public policy or it's all been just a a talk shop. Is this process likely to result in tangible new resource allocation or public policy change? Um, This is a strategy, so it is designed to be lofty. It is designed to talk to the disabled people and their families and the community and come up with what direction do we want to go for the next 10 years. But this is coupled with two other pieces of work. The first is the action plan. Now, we already have an action plan, um, which is the 2014 to 2018 action plan, and that is how we've taken things out of the past strategy and put it into active consideration. And in that process, we work with disabled people's organisation to co-design what that public policy will look like. And then the third piece of that fits into this puzzle is a framework of outcomes. So one of the issues in the past is that we haven't had really um, concrete outcomes. Now, one of the outcomes I'm keen to see is something about uh, employment because we know at the moment that only 45% of disabled people have a job, whereas it's more like 72% of every New Zealander that has a job. So there's a big gap between that, and I think we need to be able to close that gap. So we need to find some kind of a goal system that we can look at to say, how well are we doing? Uh, Is our public policy delivering? Are we getting better results for disabled people because of the strategy? It seems to me that a lot of disability policy in New Zealand has evolved by accident long before there was anything like a disability strategy and this sort of engagement. So you have some disabled people who are required to be the recipients of charity for core rehabilitation services because their organisations that provide those services have been around a very long time and that's just how it is. Some of them are actually fairly well off now, but but they're still providing charity. Others have their services funded more adequately 
by government, there's a disparity between the financial assistance that's available to those disabled as a result of an accident and those who are disabled because of congenital conditions. Isn't it time that we wiped the slate completely clean in terms of public policy on disability and took a look as a society at what's fair and equitable? Well, what we're trying to deliver is a needs-based system. So it's not really where the money comes from, is does it match the needs of the disabled person? And that's the key option here. Now, what I find really interesting is that um, one person with a similar disability to someone else doesn't necessarily have the same requirement for needs because some people, and I've just live an ordinary life and they seem to be able to manage that and they want to do that and they're out there doing it, whereas other people need more support. And I think the key issue here is that we have to be sensitive to the needs of people and make sure that that resource is available. Uh, And that's basically what we're trying to do with this new strategy is to make sure that everybody has more choice more control and more opportunities. Um, We've also got the process of enabling good lives, which is to try and more individualise the services that we can provide uh, for disabled people. The one issue that I think is a problem and we're trying to overcome is the fact that disability money comes from lots of different pockets. It comes out of education, it comes out of health, it comes out of social development, and it also comes through the mainstream system as well as universal payments. So what we need to do is somehow connect up all that money and make sure that people are making the best use of the resources that are there and that we're fitting them to their needs. And this is what Enabling Good Lives is doing. It's pooling that resource and giving people more choice of how they use it. Mm, and those little buckets of money often have different criteria in terms of what's appropriate use and, and what is not. So it can be an extremely confusing process. And they're not such little buckets of money. <laughs> yeah. We know that we spend somewhere between 4.2 and $5 billion a year on disability. So we need to make sure that we use those dollars in the best possible way and that disabled people have choice about how it's used. There is one issue that has sort of tarnished, I think, the process of this disability strategy for some people, particularly in the blind community, and this is that Braille is far less available from public facilities and utilities here in New Zealand than it is in countries that we like to compare ourselves with. And yet the government right now is proposing to remove Braille from small passenger transport services, potentially making blind people a lot more vulnerable in taxis and similar services. That would appear to be a direct violation of the UN convention that we signed up to and a contravention at least of the spirit of this disability strategy. Why is the government doing that, making the world a less accessible place? Um, I I think there's a whole lot of work being done around taxis and I think that's a bit of an aberration. Um, Certainly I've been working with the taxi companies and with Uber about how they have a disability strategy and so I think even though that may be removed in the regulation, I think you'll find that there will be specialist use and that it will still remain. But I think there's a positive out of this too, the Marrakesh Treaty. We're working our way through that and that's going to help um, being able to have more uncopyrighted books for Braille in New Zealand too when that gets signed. That will certainly be a very positive thing when yeah. New Zealand ratifies that. Just yeah, finally, because I know... It's on its way. <laughs> yes, that's encouraging to hear. I know our time is limited, so let me just conclude by asking you, when we look back in 10 years' time, how do you hope New Zealand will be a better place for disabled people to live in as a result of this disability strategy? Are there certain benchmarks that you're already looking to? Yes, it will be better, I believe, because we will have a high-level strategy with an action plan and outcomes as well. We've never had those three things in tandem. I hope it will be better because I, I believe that Public thinking around disability is changing, that disabled people are going to be more common on streets, in businesses, in the community, that employers will be more confident about how they interact with disabled people, and also how people who need extensive uh, disability supports will have more choice, more control, and more opportunities to do the things that they want to do with their lives. 
Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you and we'll watch the operationalizing of the strategy with a lot of interest in the coming years. My pleasure, Jonathan. I'd be happy to talk again. Thank you. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. I mentioned in last week's podcast that Mushroom FM, the internet radio station owned by Mosin Consulting and that is staffed by members of the blind community, was about to go through a bit of a metamorphosis and that has taken place now. And for the most part, when you tune to Mushroom FM by going to www.mushroomfm.com or searching for it in the many radio apps in which you can find it, you'll get a radio station playing a really great mix of music from the 1950s to the 1980s. The feedback on this has been enormous, so the format seems to be going down really well. And one of the features that I wanted to tell you about with respect to the new Mushroom FM format is a cool new web-based request system. How this works is that when there is no DJ steering the ship at Mushroom FM, you can help steer the ship yourself. Go to mushroomfm.com and on the homepage there, you will find a link to request a song. That link is only visible when the request system is active. In other words, when there is no live DJ. Choose that link and you'll find a very accessible form where you can search for a song or an artist from the years that we cover, the 1950s to the 1980s. If there's a match, you get a radio button for each match. You choose the radio button for the song that you want us to play. You fill in the form with your name and your location, and then you submit it. And then, just like in the good old days where you would call in and wait for the DJ to play your request, you wait and your request will eventually come up. It's a really fun thing to try. So have a listen, make a request via the web, and hopefully you'll do what a lot of people seem to be doing after the change of format and making Mushroom FM a regular part of your daily listening. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. As blind people, we generally think of the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C for short, as the good guys who, among other things, are promoting the greater accessibility of information for people like you and me. But are they fraternizing with the dark side on one specific issue? The W3C has disappointed some of its supporters who claim that it's bowed to the big entertainment and browser companies by agreeing to make a digital rights management system for online video. It's called Encrypted Media Extension. And there's no better person to talk about this kind of subject than Corey Doctorow. Corey, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for giving us some time. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for being interested in this and wanting to talk about it. Can you explain for us what this standard is and how it came about in the W3C process? Sure. You know, there's like a long story and a short story. I'll try and and get you somewhere in the middle here. So historically, when browsers wanted to do DRM, digital rights management, you know, ways to effectively remote control a computer so that the user can't give it instructions that the person sending it information disagrees with. The way that they've done this is through browser-specific plugins that talk to the browser through something called the uh, NSAPI. It dates back to the days of Netscape. That's what NS stands for. And NSAPI is terrible. It's just been the source of like all the woes and misery in terms of computer security for just such a long time that everyone was anxious to get rid of it. And uh, the World Wide Web Consortium has been working on something called HTML5. This is the new version of the standard that underpins how web pages are rendered and how we interact with them. And uh, one of the great benefits of HTML5 was that much of the kinds of rich interactivity that you get from plugins could just be done in the browser, uh, so much so that maybe we could just replace apps with with browser apps, and uh, we wouldn't need NSAPI anymore. But that did mean that you couldn't do DRM anymore. That would be the end of it. And and many people thought that probably would be the end of DRM. After all, the music industry gave up on it uh, almost a decade ago and hasn't really had any problems with it. And, the, you know, the major ways that uh, videos are consumed over the Internet these days are through subscription services that don't really need DRM. It's not like you buy a Netflix subscription because there's three movies you want to watch. And then if you could just download those, you would subscribe, you would resign from your subscription. So maybe this would just be the end of it. But uh, unfortunately, the browser vendors and the big entertainment companies led by Netflix, which is really getting a lot of pressure from the studios that back it, 
they really wanted to keep DRM in the browser. And so they leaned on the World Wide Web Consortium. And um, the World Wide Web Consortium was at a very vulnerable crossroads. Uh, browsers themselves had become a lot less important to the internet as apps had ascended in importance. The consortium had lost members, it had lost prominence, uh, and it had lost influence. And here were the browser vendors threatening to effectively specify much of how the, uh, the browser would work outside of the W3C unless the W3C gave them a forum within it to conduct this kind of negotiation. This is pretty critical because, um, generally speaking, antitrust law would prohibit all the browser vendors getting together in a room with all the entertainment companies and deciding which legal activities they wouldn't allow all of us who use the web to do. That's, that's you know, a classic conspiracy and restraint of trade. But when you do it in an open standards body like the W3C, you can go a lot further than you could in, in a kind of multi-party uh, negotiation or, or individually. And so here were the browser vendors. They, too, felt the pressure from apps uh, within the companies like Apple and Google and Firefox and so on, Mozilla. There was uh, a lot of pressure on them to find ways to make browsers more prominent in how people experience the web. Netflix had let it be known that unless there was DRM, they just would stop supporting browsers altogether. And so they opted to do this DRM standard which at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we were very anxious about. We thought that this would be a very bad idea for a lot of reasons. One is that it, there are a lot of legitimate things that people might want to do that the browser vendors uh, and the studios don't want them to do. You know, take, take Netflix, for example. The way that Netflix got its start was by mailing DVDs around in envelopes. And this was a thing that the studios called theft. And the reason that they were able to do that is they didn't have to break any technology protection measures, they didn't have to break any laws to send these DVDs around in videos, and it created this new way to watch videos that turned out to be good for the studios, and good for Netflix, and good for all of us. And the system that they're creating now, because there are, are these digital locks on, on all the video that's on the web, means that someone who has an idea that's just as radical as Netflix's was, and that is just as legal as Netflix's was, would have to break the DRM to make that idea come true. And most countries in the world make it illegal to break DRM, even for legal reasons. You know, in, in New Zealand, Bill 92A was introduced and then withdrawn because it was so controversial. Yeah, there was a uh, major Twitter campaign about that to stop yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and what happened was after the Christchurch earthquake, you had a member of parliament who said that he wouldn't allow the vote to go forward on emergency relief to dig people out of the rubble unless they reinstituted Bill 92A, which includes this ban on breaking DRM, even for legal reasons. And in, in most countries, their own versions of these laws came under equally suspicious circumstances. What's happened is the U.S. trade representative has leaned on all of America's major trading partners to make this a condition of trading with the U.S. And so by hook or by crook, countries all over the world have adopted these rules. And so we were worried on the one hand about innovation, also about accessibility, uh, I don't know what it's like in New Zealand. In, in many countries, there's a statutory right to transcode or adapt media. And then the Marrakesh Treaty enshrined this further. But m most of these laws are subordinate to the prohibition on breaking locks. Right. Uh, and so if you have to break the lock to do the legal thing, you're stuffed. And even where they have um, some accommodation for accessibility in the standard for, for DRM that they're making at the W3C, they can't predict all the ways that we might think of to adapt media, first of all, because people's sensory and physical disabilities are very idiosyncratic. Everyone has, you know, legally blind covers a lot of ground, as you know. There are also people of reading disabilities that are there present because they're paralyzed or partially paralyzed or uh, have a cognitive impairment like, like dyslexia. And so, you know, the idea that we can just figure out all the different accessibility techniques that someone might want to deploy in the future and build them into the standard now without having to have some mechanism whereby people who innovate in, in ways to provide accessibility uh, can enjoy the right to do that, can, can bring those features to other people who share their disability or people they want to serve. That's just, it's, it's a non-starter, and we already see the evidence for it. For example, a researcher named Dan Kaminsky came up with this idea uh, that he implemented where he can shift the color gamut of an image in real time to uh, adapt to the specific color blindnesses of a viewer. 
So whatever whatever bits of the gamut you can't see, he can shift for you. And it's transformative. People who have colorblindness, I'm, I'm mildly colorblind. People who have profound colorblindness report this to be a revelation. And you need to be able to decrypt the video to do it. And since you'd have to break the DRM to do that, you can't. And, you know, in the future, we'll have machine learning systems that automatically add transcripts or uh, descriptive tracks to video, and they'll need the clear text to do it, too. So we asked the W3C not to do this for all of these principled reasons. And they said, look, your problem here is not with the DRM. It's with the laws that protect the DRM. And, you know, we didn't make those laws. They're dumb laws. We agree. But take your take your fight to the law. And so we said, okay, well, let's figure out how to keep the law out of the way. Now, the W3C in its early days came into being just as software patents were becoming a a real issue of of, uh, some controversy in uh, the web and elsewhere. And they couldn't come up with a consensus position on whether software patents were good or bad for the web. But they did have this consensus position on whether a standard was more or less open if you had to license a patent to implement it. They, they thought, you know, look, a standard is more open if no one can sue you for making it without their permission. And so they said, all right, if you come to the W3C, you have to legally agree to surrender your right to use your patents to sue people who implement W3C standards. And so we said, let's just adapt that. Let's say if you come to the W3C, you have to surrender your right to sue people under laws that ban breaking DRM if they haven't done anything wrong except break the DRM, right? If there's no other cause of action, then you don't get the right to sue them. And that means that you can adapt them, you can do innovative features, and also really importantly, one of the things that laws that protect DRM have done is chilled security researchers who discover defects in products that have DRM in them because these laws have been used to actually imprison security researchers who reveal defects. They they essentially give... DRM vendors the veto over who gets to disclose embarrassing facts about the mistakes they made in their products. And unsurprisingly, companies don't like being embarrassed on the public stage. And so they routinely use this to silence people who find vulnerabilities in DRM in cars and tractors and heart monitors and implanted medical devices like like, uh, insulin pumps and and, uh, heart monitor and uh, pacemakers and, you know, every range of technology. And HTML5, remember, is supposed to replace apps as the way that we control all of those technologies. And so it would give all the same companies that already have form for attacking security researchers, for telling people true things that they need to know if they're going to rely on technology and and trust their health and safety to them. It would give them cause of action to sue everyone who who disclosed vulnerabilities about everything, because that's what HTML5 is supposed to be the interface for. So we proposed this to the W3C, and uh, we had some support. The, the charter of the group that's making the DRM came up for renewal, and we said that charter shouldn't be renewed unless they agree to these conditions. It wasn't enough to, to carry the day. It was enough that, that the situation deadlocked, and the W3C eventually just vetoed all the people who objected and allowed the work to go forward without any further discussion. But now it's moving to the next vote. And any day now, they're, they're, they're delayed in their test cases, but any day now, they're going to hold a vote on whether to move this to the penultimate stage of being a W3C standard. And we now have 17 W3C members at least signed up at, and publicly committed to blocking any further progress unless something is done to protect uh, people who reveal vulnerabilities, people who provide accessibility, people who extend technologies in legal ways. Uh, And those members include the Royal National Institute for Blind People, Media Access Australia, and Benetech, which are three leading organizations that provide accessibility to people with visual disabilities. So that's 17 out of how many members in total? Well, there's 400 members in total, but in practice, there's only about 20-some members that voted in the last one of these uh, polls. So it's it's still a big number. And most importantly, at 5% of the membership, which is 20, which is, you know, pretty close to where we are, and, and we I think we may well shoot past it, uh, we get to veto the W3C executive's decisions. And so that's that's a, a, a big number. I don't think that we would do that. I, I would hope that we would come to some equitable solution 
that when they saw that that was a possibility, because I think a lot of how the W3C runs is based on the kind of moral credibility of the leadership. And they have never in the organization's history been vetoed by the members. And, and, you know, my hope would be that we wouldn't start here, that instead we would find a way, as the W3C has in so many other instances, to get all of the different stakeholders to acknowledge each other's positions and find a mutually acceptable solution, one that we can all live with. You mentioned the music industry, and they had their battle with Napster and similar services. Eventually, Apple came along with iTunes. Apple finally took the DRM away. And the music industry, of course, has gone through a further transformation with services like uh, Spotify and, and Apple Music. But then when you look at the ebook industry and the video industry, they are still moving down very DRM-centric paths. And Netflix recently upped the ante by putting some very strong geo-blocking circumvention techniques in place, which seem to have done a very good job of foiling most VPN technologies and DNS technologies. So it seems that there is this very different series of tracks that different bits of the, uh, of the publishing industry and all its guises are now on. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that one feature that as a, and, you know, in my, I should mention in my other life, I'm a, I'm a novelist. I'm a New York Times bestselling novelist. And uh, I don't allow my books to be published with DRM. And that's not because I worry or don't worry about people making illicit copies. It's because the way that the law works is that the DRM vendor is the only party withstanding to authorize the people who use the technology or used by the books to remove the DRM. So if I allow Amazon to sell my books with DRM on them, and then later on, Amazon and I have a dispute, and they say, we're not going to sell your books anymore unless you give us a bigger share of the revenue or unless we can uh, dictate in more fine-grained ways what you can and can't publish. You know, Apple at one point said that they wouldn't publish books that had links to Amazon in them. If I said, all right, then, get stuffed, I'm going to tell all of my readers that from now on, I'm everywhere but Amazon. Come and buy my books on Kobo and and on Nook and all the other marketplaces. Only Amazon could authorize my readers to take their books with them when they followed me to another service. And so every dollar that I earn selling my books on Amazon with DRM is a dollar in value that my customers have to surrender to follow me to a rival service. And so Hachette is one of the big five publishers, this French giant that owns uh, Little Brown and uh, Orbit. When they had a dispute with Amazon and Amazon just stopped selling all of their eBooks, including all the Harry Potter books, they ended up having to capitulate entirely to Amazon because they had no leverage to use against it. And so I think that what happened with the record industry is they worked out very quickly that because a single DRM vendor, uh, Apple, controlled their entire retail channel, that they had lost control over their own destiny. They couldn't control pricing or bundling or promotion or anything. And because Apple's platform, the uh, iPod and then the iPhone, only supported Apple's DRM and not their rival's DRM, that the only way to get music onto that iPod without giving Apple the whip hand over them was to just take the DRM off altogether. And so Amazon came along and offered them a DRM-free MP3 store And then once there was no DRM on Amazon's tracks, there was no point in keeping DRM on Apple's tracks. And that was the end of it. And I think that the other industries haven't yet gone through that come to Jesus moment where they worked out that, you know, anytime someone puts a lock on something that belongs to you and won't give you the key, that lock has not been put on it for your benefit. And as they figure that out, it may be too late. And uh, that's one of the things that I worry about when I worry about creators' rights. If there were a DRM technology that allowed you to protect your intellectual property, the books that you write, but that you had full control over in some way, you would not have a kind of a philosophical objection to that. Well, I wouldn't go that far because I think that you're you're talking about a technological impossibility. So the way that normal cryptography works, and, and cryptography does work, cryptography is amazing. It's a new fact in the universe that normal people can use their pocket computers to scramble data so thoroughly that if all of the hydrogen atoms in the universe were turned into computers that did nothing but try and guess their key until the universe wound down at its heat death, we would run out of universe before we ran out of possible keys. That is an amazing new fact on the ground. 
Um, but the way that normal cryptography works is you have, you know, in the simplest model, three people. You have Alice and Bob and Carol. And Alice and Bob trust each other, and Carol doesn't trust either of them and isn't trusted by them. And she wants to intercept and read their messages. So Alice and Bob scramble their messages using publicly defined key uh, ciphers, uh, uh, algorithms, because, you know, the way that science works is the stuff that's been exposed to the most peer review is the most robust and hardy. And then having scrambled that, because they know that the algorithm works, they know that Carol, even if she gets a copy of the scrambled message, won't be able to make any sense of it unless she has the key that was used to scramble it. And so long as they can keep the key secret to them, and there are lots of ways of doing it, and it's very clever and cool, then it doesn't matter that Carol has a copy of the scrambled message because she'll never make any sense of it. But in the, in the DRM model, think of Netflix. You don't have Alice and Bob and Carol. You just have Alice and Bob. Netflix is Bob. And Netflix wants to scramble a movie and send it to you. And then Netflix wants to be sure that when you descramble that movie, that you only do so using a program that Netflix has designed and that that program doesn't have a save button that lets you just save out an unscrambled version. And so Netflix gives you, Alice, that program and Netflix hides the key in the program so that the program can descramble it, because without the key, you can never descramble it. And then Netflix assumes that you, Alice, are never going to figure out where they hid the key. Well, that's where the nonsense goes in, because anyone in the world can be Alice just by giving Netflix a tenor, and then you become a Netflix subscriber. And then if you're like a bored grad student with your own electron tunneling microscope and nothing to do this weekend, you can go and figure out where Netflix hit the key. And once you figure that out, you can either save movies in the clear and share them, or you can share the key, or you can make a program that has a save button, or all of the above. And this is why all the DRM ever made, even the best DRM made for hundreds of millions of dollars by the smartest engineers in the world, get broken by teenagers in days. Because it's a technical impossibility to design a system where you give the adversary a key and the adversary never recovers it. It's like making a really good bank safe and then saying this safe is so good we're going to fill it with money and leave it in the bank robber's living room instead of our vault. That's just a terrible idea. It's obvious on its face that it's a terrible idea. Does that mean that content creators then just have to budget for or accept that piracy is a fact of life and, and they just have to, to wear that? Well, I think it's, it's uh, um, even uh, wor- uh, better or worse than that. I think that like through all of history, the ability to minutely specify how people use and interact with your material has never been a feature of either copyright or the author's traditional rights. Um, that uh, we have always had a little bit of leakage around the edge, but that we've also always had strategies for turning that leakage into profit by trying to enlist people who read and share your books to come and, and, and buy them or, or in some other way enrich you. And that this is normal and part of culture and that the artists who figure that stuff out from generation to generation and technology to technology have always been the artists who thrived. I mean, remember, almost everyone who tried to make a living in the arts, and by almost everyone, I mean 99.9% of them, lost money in the bargain, let alone having made any money at all. But the people who did make money did so by adapting themselves to the technological reality of the day when phonograms and radio broadcasts meant that no matter how entertaining you were to see in person, if you didn't sound great to someone who couldn't see your mugging and charismatic aping you had no career, the vaudevillians who sounded great found a new income for themselves. And the ones who didn't had their income sunset. Now, I'm a Canadian and I believe in public media because I understand that there's lots of stuff that I think is good art that isn't uh, necessarily commercially viable. And, you know, uh, I applaud Australia, New Zealand, other countries in the Commonwealth that have robust public arts funding and public broadcasters. And I think that if we want to make sure that artists get funded, giving them the right to sue people who break DRM or who share their favorite books with their friends, none of this has any nexus with getting artists funded. All it does is, on the one hand, create a kind of dangerous temptation to make an ass of yourself. And, and on the other hand, arm our publishers with whom we have a not entirely set aligned set of incentives to exploit us by making it harder to enter the market. So, you know, when, when YouTube started, all you needed to do to make a YouTube was have a pile of hard drives. And now, because the video industry 
has pushed so hard uh, on the copyright question with Google to start a rival to YouTube, you need to build a, a duplicate of their content ID system. And that's a multi-hundred million dollar investment. And so what that means is that there are no new YouTubes. When YouTube started, there were lots of alternatives. Now there's really just one left standing of any size. And YouTube has started to mirror the most exploitative practices of the entertainment companies that have challenged in a cooperation with them. When the Spotify competitor from YouTube launched, YouTube gathered the four record labels in a room and negotiated the terms on which they would license their material. And then they told all the indie artists that if they wanted to continue to use YouTube to promote their material, that they would have to take the deal negotiated by the big four. And so effectively you end up with the same exploitative relationship, the new boss is the same as the old boss because there's no competition. And yet, as every one of the big labels will tell you, YouTube is still a problem for illicit copying. And so you get the worst of all worlds, as much illicit copying as there ever was, and no negotiating leverage for independents who are seeking a better deal for the work that is commercially viable. In previous years, before DRM technology, if I bought a print book, a physical hard copy book, and I lent it to someone, I don't have the book anymore. They've got it instead. And so I've lost something. Isn't that the issue that with DRM uh, circumvention or lack of DRM on a product, it's not just a case of lending a title to someone. It's just so easy to copy it. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, technology giveth and technology taketh away. There was a time when the only way to hear music performed was to buy a ticket to a hall that had perfect excludability, right? They had like the ultimate business model. They had the, the bald dude at the door with his arms crossed business model. If you didn't buy a ticket, that dude would bop you on the head and sling you out, right? And then you had radio and it had a completely different set of affordances and capabilities and there was no effective way to exclude people. And it wasn't that radio wasn't terrible news for some musicians, it really was, right? If you go back and you look at the rosters of the musicians who were thriving, who were the mega stars who could pack the halls in the age of vaudeville, their names are largely unknown today. You know, John Philip Sousa, the American big band composer uh, or, or marching band composer, went to Congress in 1909 to inveigle against the record player. He said, if the infernal talking machines are allowed to continue, we will lose our voices. We lost our tails when we came down out of the trees. Uh, and yet, there was a whole other generation of artists lurking in potential who made a living that way. The real issue right now for authors who have successful books is not piracy. It's that in general, their relationships with their publishers are not very good. Publishers take a very large share of their income. They give them very little control over their destiny. And um, that share has been generally trending up, not down. You know, even in the age of eBooks where the capital costs are so much lower, the royalty hasn't kept up. It's, it's inched up rather than leapt forward, even though the publisher's expenses have radically declined in the age of, of ebooks. And so if we really want to help authors, we need to, rather than trying to figure out how to make all authors commercially viable, which the only way we could do that is say, if you call yourself an author, we'll give you $40,000 a year until you stop, uh, which, you know, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't necessarily oppose that, but it That'd doesn't be have nice. to do with yeah. copyright, right? The, the <laughs> way to make sure that the, the thing that we should be doing is making sure that the authors whose books are selling are first in line to be enriched from them. And you don't do that by increasing intermediary liability, and you don't do that by creating uh, DRM systems with concomitant laws that hand all the negotiating leverage to the platforms instead of the investors and creators. The encrypted media extension, just getting back to that, the provision does, I think, have some very specific accessibility exemptions in place. Is that correct? For example, audio description is recognized as the standard currently sits. Yeah, no, that's right. But it, what it doesn't do is it doesn't anticipate, for example, that machine intelligence might provide that descriptive tract. They've done an admirable job of coming up with all of the different ways that exist today that they could think of when they sat down three years ago to accommodate accessibility. They have done nothing to accommodate all the accessible technologies that will come in the future. And unless you think this is the end for accessibility and that all of the exciting things happening in every single realm of technology, software, machine learning, miniaturization, and Moore's Law will yield no dividends for accessibility, then you know there's no reason to believe 
that uh, they've they've been exhaustive. And indeed, even before the negotiation had finished, Dan Kaminsky had come up with this colorblindness system that uh, already uh, goes beyond what they allow. Yes, yeah, so I could put innovation in a, in a holding pattern. Uh, you um, will be aware, of course, that Facebook recently has started automatically attempting to describe images for blind people. And Apple's using the same technology. Google's had it in the cloud for a while as well, where they're using mm-hmm. sort of artificial intelligence to try and work out what the picture is of so you can search for it. So you're saying that there could come a time, conceivably in a few years' time, as machines become more powerful and these algorithms become more developed, that a machine could look at a movie, audio describe it, potentially with even more natural sounding text to speech, and the whole thing could be automated, which could open up the number of audio described movies considerably, but that the standard may prevent us from having access to such uh, description. Sure. I mean, we have analogies to this already. For a long time, Audiobooks were a fairly fringe activity. You had volunteers who would go into places like RNIB or CNIB and Mm. and record their own readings. And uh, text-to-speech was pretty nascent and, you know, as you'll know better than I do, was was at first not particularly great uh, at narration. But as the years have gone by, it has monotonically improved in its narration. And, you know, it's improved so much that it's made the leap from the edge cases of people who have reading or, or uh, sensory or physical disabilities to things like sat-navs, where now I have turn-by-turn turn on my phone that sounds as good as a recording. You know, my eight-year-old the other day uh, said to me, you know, Dad, do they, do, do they get a lady who records all of the names of all the streets <laughs> and then <laughs> piece it together? You know, which I think that is how it used to work, more or less. And I think that she made a very natural assumption and, you know, the fact that she couldn't tell was was really telling. Yes. And I think that, you know, when things that improve accessibility are harnessed to things that people who are able-bodied or who have, don't have sensory disabilities also use, that the investment increases radically, that you see massive increases in quality. It's the difference between, you know, DAISY and all of the technologies we have now for screen reading and ebooks which are, are vastly improved, not because the DAISY Consortium isn't filled with good, smart people, but because a small group of good, smart people working on a shoestring will never match the combined might of all of the different entities who have a good reason to try to convert text-to-speech. And so when Amazon turned on text-to-speech for the Kindle, and then shame it, you know, it's a shame they turned it off again because of dumb objections from a, a few of the big publishers, when, when Amazon turned that on, you know, briefly, all of my visually impaired friends, it was amazing for them. It was like utopia. And I think that you can expect that the same technological innovation that made that seemingly impossible leap come true will make other seemingly impossible leaps come true. And maybe it'll turn out that machine description plateaus before it's useful for uh, description. And maybe it won't. But the, the whole point of technological progress is we don't know exactly where it's going to land. You know, it, when, when Comcast, which is one of the major partners in generating this DRM, Comcast's origin is that uh, in the old days in America, uh, only cities were close enough to broadcast antennas to get TV. And so these companies called con- community access TV companies put up giant antennas and ran wires to their customers' houses, which were called cable, And they took the broadcaster signals without their permission and over their howls of protest, and yet were able to invent this new industry because they came up with a new technology that hadn't been anticipated when the first broadcast towers went up. When Apple started iTunes, they mixed and burned in ways that the record industry objected to, and no one had really anticipated MP3 players when the CD was being created and all that music was being digitized. One after another, all of these technologies that made the names, reputations, and fortunes of all the companies advocating for DRM, they only existed because someone thought of something that no one had ever thought of before, and because the law did not prohibit things that incumbents didn't like. It had to have, it had to, there was no law that said, if you don't like it, it's illegal. The law was, if Congress or Parliament had come up with a specific prohibition, having thought about this, it is illegal, Otherwise, it is presumptively lawful. And as soon as you add a, a molecule-thick layer of DRM around a technology, you convert 
the prevailing legal regime of things being lawful unless they're explicitly unlawful to one in which all commercial preferences become legal obligations. Netflix commercial preference that it be the sole arbiter of whether, when, and under what circumstances you get a, a PVR for Netflix, that preference becomes a legal obligation on anyone who might want to build it. And in America, violating that legal obligation is a felony punishable by five years in prison and a $500,000 fine for a first offense. So, you know, I don't think that innovation is done. I think that there's more to come. It's not that I don't love Netflix and iTunes. It's just that I love the next one more, and I can't wait to see it. The vote on encrypted media extension is imminent, and it may have even occurred by the time we publish this podcast, such as the swift nature of news. What are the possible outcomes there if, if you're not successful in this forthcoming vote? Is that essentially the end of the line? Well, it, this is only one facet of a much larger project that I initiated at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I should mention that I work for, for Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's an American-based uh, uh, charitable organization that advocates for digital rights. And I took a 10-year hiatus, uh, having been their European director, and then went back to work on this project we call Apollo 1201, whose goal is to eradicate all the DRM in the world within a decade. And one aspect of this is that we've just launched a federal lawsuit against the U.S. government to repeal the sections of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that protect DRM on a constitutional argument uh, that it, it interferes with with core constitutional freedoms like the First Amendment, which is the, the right to freely express yourself. And it's a pretty sound lawsuit. It might take a long time to work its way through the courts, but in the absence of this law, there's really no reason to make DRM because, as I said, it's not technically challenging to remove DRM. It's just illegal. And once this law is a dead letter in America, there's not really any reason for all of the other countries in the world that have adopted this law at the behest of the U.S. Trade Representative to keep it on their books. You know, when New Zealand says, all right, we won't allow our local business to participate in this otherwise potentially profitable and otherwise legal and legitimate line of industry, if America promises not to do it either, then there's, if America stops doing th that, if they stop prohibiting that activity, why would New Zealand keep the law on its books? Uh, uh, you know, suicide packs are supposed to be mutual, right? You know, the, 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 the U.S. trade representative and the New Zealand government showed that if, you know, if, if uh, uh, America jumps off the Empire State Building, then New Zealand will too. But if America doesn't jump off the Empire State Building, why would New Zealand? Right. So the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is critical here, isn't it? The, the TPP sure. is sort of looming, and uh, there are concerns here, as there are, I'm sure, in a number of other jurisdictions about sovereignty issues with respect to the TPP and what nation states are signing up for. It's crunch time because uh, both presidential candidates don't support the TPP, and so really there's a very limited time left during the Obama administration to get it through. Yeah, I, I I would be deeply surprised if they managed to ram it through before the uh, end of, of this Congress, not least because the uh, members of Congress themselves are, are trying to position themselves, uh, the Republican members are trying to position themselves as enemies of Obama. And so anything that they do to make his signature policy initiatives uh, into realities before he leaves office will only weigh against them when they face challengers in their um, in their uh, primary races where where other people within the Republican Party who want to unseat them and become the, the candidates face them down. And so I think it's very unlikely that we'll see the passage of it. I mean, the fact that the Republicans have now branded TPP as Obama trade tells you, I think, everything you need to know. Uh, I'm no uh, enormous fan of the Republican Party, and, and you know, I don't get a vote because I'm, I'm a foreigner, but it, and this particular incarnation of the Republican Party, uh, I'm sure, as with many of your listeners, I find it especially troublesome. But I think that if nothing else, we can expect them to continue to obstruct everything, including this, on the way to the election. And I think that the new Canadian Parliament is unlikely to ratify TPP as it stands, I know that the key parliament has pushed through TPP accession and TPP++ accession before, even before it was an obligation. Mm. And it, it, it is part of, I think, a, a larger disturbing trend in New Zealand's relationship to both trade and finance, as we saw with the Panama leaks 
and and also internet freedom, as we saw with Bill 92A. So, uh, you know, this that's not something I have a lot of direct influence over, but I know that there are a lot of Kiwis who are pretty worried about it. Absolutely. It's a, it's a hot topic. You know, it's been great to explore this with you because I know why we've strayed a little bit from the standard we got you on to talk about. I think that this is a new way for a lot of people of thinking about these topics because the establishment, as it were, have done a pretty convincing job of saying that this is the, the only way that this can be done and this is the only way intellectual property can be protected. So hopefully we may have given some people some pause for thought, uh, but we'll be monitoring the outcome of the forthcoming vote and, and further processes with the W3C. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been a thrill to talk with you. Well, thank you very much. Can I add, if, if any of your listeners are security or privacy researchers or computer scientists, we have an open letter to the W3C that asks on behalf of those professionals and students and academics and scholars to uh, allow uh, to, to bind their members to allowing security researchers to publish true facts about defects in the DRM that they discover. It's been signed by some of the most eminent security researchers in the world already, people like Ron Rivest and... Um, Bruce Schneier, if you send me an email, Corey, C-O-R-Y, at EFF.org, and you tell me your name and your affiliation and what country you want alongside your name, what country you work in, I will add your name to that open letter. How many do you have on the open letter at the moment? Oh, it's a couple hundred, I think, now. Right. It's, I, it's, I vet everyone by hand and add it, so there isn't, it's just a static page that I'm adding names to, so there isn't a, a good, easy way at it. And it's, it's, some of, it's, it's some very, very prominent people, uh, including some of the senior technological people at the W3C itself. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for your time. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.